Again, free thinkers, welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Well, guys, today we are joined by a true Liberty All Star. Our guest is a person who we've had on the show before, but is one of my favorite guests because he's just so damn ideologically consistent, and he's also very articulate and well spoken. Our guest this week is longtime friend of the Free Thought Project, Jack V. Lloyd. Now, Jack is a busy man. When he's not being interviewed, he is writing and releasing books on the philosophy of voluntarism, with two books already published this year alone. Now, today, we talk to Jack about an array of different topics. However, I must admit, we didn't get into a few things that we wanted to discuss because there's just so much going on right now. But we did have time to sink our teeth into the Israel-Palestine conflict, if libertarianism is going more mainstream. Uh, We did talk about the delusions of grandeur dreamed up by Warhawk Nikki Haley, and of course the dangers of censorship. The conversation ended talking about Jack's new comic book. And I should probably mention, guys, that we are working on getting Jack's wife on the show, The Philosopher. Hopefully we have her in January, so look forward to that, guys. But for now, here is our conversation with author, activist, and longtime anarchist Jack V. Lloyd. Jack, what's up, dude? Hello, how's it going, Jason? It's going good, man. We're excited about this conversation, and uh, thanks so much for joining us today. It's certainly great to have you back on the show. Uh, Last time you were on the show, it was in June of last year, and uh, we talked about your new book at the time, and we also discussed some philosophy about how taxation is theft, and of course, uh, the dangers of red flag laws. Uh, That episode was entitled Manifesting Liberty in an Unfree World and the Power of Voluntarism, So definitely check that out, guys. But you're back today, and we have a lot to talk about. And uh, I know this week earlier, you you were busy. You did an interview with the the great Larry Sharp, who has been on our podcast a couple times now. Uh, You also did an interview with Critical Blast, and I think there were others, too. And uh, there's a reason for this, right? It's because uh, you're in such high demand for interviews because you're a wealth of knowledge. And uh, you know, today we, we wanted to get into a few different things. We want to talk about your Voluntarius comic, which is gearing up for a new edition. And uh, we want to talk about a few other things. We'll likely be jumping around on a few different trending topics because uh, you're one of those types of people who keep a close eye on what's going on. And you seem to always have a unique and interesting perspective on the current news events. But before we get into all that, I actually um, wanted to ask you if you happen to have some time last night to watch the Dave Smith, Laura Loomer debate, 
which uh, seemed to be all the rage in the Twitterverse and libertarian circles. Uh, I, I did catch a little bit this morning, I, maybe about an hour or so. Uh, it was certainly interesting. Dave made some great points. Um, but yeah, did you have a chance to watch it? And uh, if not, I guess this could be kind of more of like a broad question. I, I, I feel like you've been talking about this lately. But uh, what do you think are you know some of the biggest aspects that people are missing uh, within the Israel-Palestine conversation? Thank you so much, Jason. That's some really high praise. So I, I hope to live up to that. But uh, I did not see the uh, entire interview. I did catch a couple of clips this morning. I was a bit busy with uh, doing some house cleaning and chores I had to get done. Uh, otherwise, you know, the wife is not happy. Uh, you know, you got to have the uh, bathroom clean, right? Um, but uh, basically, when it comes to uh, this topic, there is a lot that people, I guess you could say, have uh, – some difficulties perceiving on the totality of the circumstances. And a big part of why there's a, a difficulty is that people have different biases about what form of government, what flavor of tyranny they prefer to see. And often the discussion is, is not really revolving around the core principles of liberty. It's revolving around who should have the most power to enforce their will on a, a group of people through state violence. And so for me, I like to take a novel approach at looking at these situations and remind people of the core principles that we hold near and dear with voluntarism and libertarianism and remind people that they don't have to settle for second best options in their advocacy. We as individuals here, we're, we're not at the helm of controlling the state policy over in the Middle East. Uh, I don't believe as far as you know, last I checked, none of us are presidents or heads of state or diplomats or any of those things where we might have some greater direct influence on what exactly is going on. So what we're doing here is, is we're educating people and helping them think outside the state and not accepting or rationalizing more state violence. And so that's what I like to focus on when it comes to the, the situation with the uh, state of Israel and, and the conflicts that are going on um, over in the Middle East. And I just encourage people to think outside the state there uh, by not rationalizing violence on any side and thinking about how we can move toward a libertarian order, which means ending victimless crime laws, moving toward true free markets, allowing uh, free uh, self-defense and people to be able to protect themselves. And I think that that is really what brings about peace for all people. And that's just not something that applies over here in the States. That applies everywhere. It's, it's a universal principle that when we have respect to body and property rights, when we have people able to robustly defend themselves from those who would violate individual body and property rights, we do see peace as people are incentivized to have peace based on what it is that they get from themselves and want to protect and want to you know, keep flourishing in. Well, I, I think those ideas are certainly starting to resonate and it looked like they were really resonating with the right for a while there. You know, we saw a bunch of people after Trump got out of office, a bunch of people on the right started like leaning libertarian. They were all anti-war. And, um, you know, and, and then here we go <laughs> when, when, uh, the Brown people start, you know, fighting again, that's when the, the right gets all, uh, you know, they they start frothing at the mouth again for war. And that's what we saw when, when, um, Israel and Palestine started, uh, fighting with one another. We saw the right do a complete 180 and go back to supporting the war. Jason made a, a meme recently that went like pretty super viral. It's like, I, I I'm just going to paraphrase it cause I don't have it in front of me, but it was, uh, it said, I don't stand with Hamas. I don't stand with Israel. I stand with the 
millions of people in the world that are held hostage by their government, you know, and that thing went super viral and that, the, that idea and sentiment resonates with so many people, but as we're all watching right now, you know, like it, it's, it's a very fragile ideology that can be easily swayed by people across the planet, you know, and, and that's what, uh, so that's what basically what that article I wrote uh, this week was about was how easily swayed people are, are into supporting, you know, wholesale genocide against a group of people that they don't even know. And, and even Alex Jones, right? He came out and he used to be anti-war. Alex Jones was like, we need to carpet bomb the whole area, you know, lay it all flat. And, and I mean, this is fucking crazy. That's talking, that's, that's like worse than what the Nazis did, right? They, you want to, to, to bomb an entire nation out of existence and, and everybody's openly advocating for that. And, uh, we have these conversations a lot, you know, about the two party paradigm, but I wanted to get your perspective on what you think is like this resonant inane thing in, in, in humans that allows them to completely throw principle and rationality, you know, out the window when it comes to situations like these because of some statist party or uh, or or whatever. Like, well, what do you think causes that and human beings to do that? Well, certainly it has a bit to do with uh, people being riled up through state propaganda and appealing to to tribalism and, of course, at the root, uh, nationalism. And I often you know, have to talk about these things with people who feel very triggered by it because inherently when people are in countries where from childhood they're propagandized to believe that the land that they are born into is some type of – manifest destiny government and that the people who are ruling them are their beloved captors and that you know that they're basically you know being told that without those who are in power they would be nothing they would not have an identity they would just be uh, conquered and worthless it, it's difficult for people to think outside of that and they quickly associate with flags and parades and chants uh, their identities and that can be you know basically leveraged by governments through propaganda to get people to quickly drum up a deep-rooted psychological trauma that causes them to have a reaction to a situation and so that's why governments around the world have these types of uh, compulsory schools is to inculcate young people with those sentiments even if they have disagreements no matter what the goal is to get young people to uh, have a sense of identity and abstraction with those who are ruling them and to also see others as uh, people who are their enemies and who you know uh, hate them and this doesn't you know just happen when it comes to, to governments you know outright there's also of course things that can happen like that with cults or emerging political bodies and that type of hate is is often taught and, and it can also be tied to other things too, you know, including religious values. So we have many areas where uh, groupthink heuristics are put onto people to get them to quickly hate each other or create in-group, out-groups. And so 
one of the toughest things to do is to just step back from that and take a top-down view and to really look at who is doing what actions and to think about those things in a principled way. And so that's that's often what I try to get people to do. And I often have to do that across the board. You know, I have to push back in terms of, you know, what I want to express. I have to push back on people who are supporting the violence of the state of Israel. I also have to push back on people who are supporting the violence of Palestinian uh agency leadership, uh, because it doesn't just go one way. There are multiple aspects of people trying to create their version of an ethno-religious uh, nationalism. And so that is is probably the toughest part, you know, being on the outlier, because it's very easy for people to just, you know, go on the pendulum and swing from one side to the other, say, oh, see, okay, today the Israeli government's bad. And oh, okay, you know, it's the Palestinians you're pressed. Wave that, you know, green, red, and, and black flag, huh? And then you can go to the other side. Oh, well, okay, more Jews were killed because of this. Okay, well, we need to support the, the blue and white flag. And at the end of the day, the people who are losing is just the regular people who are trying to live their lives in peace, uh, while different factions of people trying to gain political power for themselves and to rule others on a wider scale are you know being essentially benefited from the chaos and so reminding people that the goal is to not have more states and more statism in the process i think that's one of the toughest parts um, because it's a very tough philosophical journey to make for people especially um, people who are halfway there when they're rationalizing uh, different types of, of governments. They're like, well, this government's you know okay that they enacted violence in the past, but uh, this new one, they're not okay, and 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 things like that where they they make exceptions. And so I, I try to drive people, uh, you know, making those exceptions. And even just one simple thing today, I was I was talking about with another was how when people talk about uh, Gaza being an open air prison, I'm like, what makes it an open air prison to you? And when you think about it, it's like, okay, you have Egypt here, you have Israel here, and there's these walls, and there's soldiers, and they have checkpoints, and they check people's papers, and they control people. And you're like, wait a second, that's just borders. What you're describing as an open-air prison is literally the normal border enforcement for every single country in the world. If you try to cross the United States to Mexico as an American citizen, you go through a checkpoint where there's armed guards, and they can literally go through your things and take them from you or lock you up. So when people talk about this, it's it's kind of strange that they suddenly don't see that. Like in one moment, they're like, oh, well, this is a terrible thing. I'm like, oh, that's interesting because what you're describing is just simply a small region surrounded by the borders of other governments. Yeah. So fundamentally, if you think that's a prison, then you must really actually be for people being free to move and travel without being molested by government agents demanding papers, pointing guns at people. That's what it is. And so taking that kind of concept and looking deeply at that and then realizing what are the qualities uh, that make up these labels, it really can serve to kind of wake people up and be like, oh, wow, you know, when you put it that way, uh, th this is actually a, a global problem. This is not just a problem that's in Israel versus one group of people. This is a problem across the world of various governments trying to control people, trying to gain more power over others, selectively benefiting some, attacking others, and then using the name of national security to violate everyone's fundamental body of property rights. I'm like, this is, this is actually a uh, par for the course. So the oldest trick of the book. Yeah. <laughs> Great points. And, um, I know initially you had mentioned, you know, I, I maybe built up your presence on this interview, maybe a little bit too much, but this is exactly why I like having you on. Cause you're just this super based voluntarist. And I couldn't agree more. We kind of have to zoom out from this and, 
by doing so, yeah, we look at the state and the apparatus of the state and how it's funded, how it enforces its laws. Ultimately, these are just glorified gangs, right? So it, it makes sense uh, why people are still uh, so knee deep in this indoctrination because this is all they've ever known. You know, so and there is a certain amount of trauma bonding when it comes to Stockholm syndrome, which I feel like most people who still advocate for the state are, are suffering from. And uh, yeah, if this was something that was voluntarily funded, let's say a voluntarily funded border patrol, it wouldn't look anything like this. And, and I think, again, just to kind of recenter this, the focus here and the problem is the state and the state apparatus, not to mention uh, the 18, you know, almost 19 billion uh, the U.S. has sent to Israel to uh, maintain the, this border control. So this ultimately is, you know, government at its worst. This is the state, as Jag was just mentioning. And the, the further we could start to move ideologically away from this being the norm, I, I think the better. Now, one of the things that um, was interesting in the little tidbit of the debate that I caught between Dave Smith and Laura Loomer was uh, Loomer kept on kind of trying to focus and, and make this point that uh, the, the people of Palestine are essentially responsible for what's going on right now and for the, this punishment, this collective punish, punishment that they're receiving because, uh, you know, back in, 20, in 2005, they actually uh, voted for Hamas. You know, therefore, it's their responsibility to remove the political leadership of Hamas. And therefore, they basically have everything that's coming to them. And, you know, Dave actually had a, a great rebuttal to that. He said, well, look, like there's, you know, how many thousands of people were killed in Iraq, uh, in Syria, in Afghanistan, is that all that blood in your hands? You know, so to a certain degree, some of this stuff is out of our control, right? These are, again, glorified gangs. These are state apparatuses, regardless of who we vote for and how we vote, how hard we vote. A lot of this stuff is ultimately out of our control. This is gang warfare. And, and I think even on a deeper level, this is an ideological war uh, between both sides. And um, it feels like there's still this vilification, especially by people like Loomer and maybe some of the right wing. This, there's still this vilification of Islam that's kind of this residue left over from the 9-11 uh, war on terror, you know. And so it feels like some of those people haven't quite transcended uh, those those narratives and those talking points. And not to say that, you know, um, the religion of Islam is perfect. And I know there's extremists in, in all types of religions uh, and not just you know, um, not just the Muslim faith. So I, I know I'm saying a lot here, but I think ultimately what this comes down to is, you know, a lack of principles and what, you know, what we focus on so much as libertarians, as voluntarists is trying to get people to understand and value those principles instead of having your politics literally just be a social club that you and your, your in-group preferences and your tribe cling to and, and repeat without even putting much logic or, or thought into it. But with that said, you know, over the past four years since COVID, many have willfully or unconsciously adopted some of these libertarian talking points and principles, right? Like we've seen uh, populist movements such as the Mises caucus grow in size and stature. And it seems like even some on the, who used to be on the left, you know, who used to be anti-war pro-peace have shifted towards more of like libertarian positions of non-aggression and, and non-intervention. Um, and we, we've seen, you know, libertarian light podcasts like Tim Cast explode over the past couple of years. So it feels like we are shifting right now. We are shifting towards being more, more of a principled people, more of a principled society. 
and even some Trump supporting right wingers have gravitated towards, you know, some libertarian positions of, of principle. Of course, you know, there still seems to be some fluidity between the right and conservatives and big L libertarians. And we've even seen uh, Javier Malay in, in Argentina, uh, who is an anarcho-capitalist presidential candidate with a lot of support. And I know we talked about this in a couple of our podcasts now, but I mean, even his normally followers are waving yellow and black flags at his rallies. So as somebody who has been in the liberty movement for 15 plus years, uh, do you believe the main the the liberty movement has become more mainstream? And I, I guess this is a dual part question here. What do you think would need to happen for more mass adoption of libertarianism here in the States? That's a great question. And I do agree with you even on the heels of what you just said that uh, the principles and ideas of liberty have become more mainstream. And yes, you know, even Javier Malay is an example of that permeating across the world. And I think that it's great to take those signs, even if you think that mm, maybe there's some foul play afoot or maybe they're not all the way there. It doesn't matter. All that matters is, is this actually making it to mainstream discourse? And is that causing people to learn about things they would never otherwise come into contact right. with? Because they're certainly not going to teach voluntarism at a public school, you know, in eighth grade civics. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that this is even getting out there and, you know, it is kind of a synchronicity among many different interests at once that this is kind of happening, you know, Fox News kicking off people and then Elon Musk saying, come on over to X and <laughs> sure. uh, post your stuff here. I mean, again, without that nice synchronicity, we wouldn't have had all of these various platform uh, uh, platform opportunities and people being able to get their message out. So I'm very thankful for people who took a stand, even if it's not necessarily fully for our interests. Maybe they have their own interests. And I am thankful still for the opportunities. I'm thankful for these alternative platforms, you know, like Rubble or like Minds, where people can actually get their message out and get to a wider audience without most of the censorship, if not all the censorship. So we are seeing that global percolation that I think had already begun back in 2019. And, you know, we saw that the heels of the Epstein situation, the world was in a type of chaos, there was mass revolts going from Hong Kong, you know, all the way to South America. And a part of what happened with that lockdown program on the heels of the, uh, you know, the government manufactured thing that we uh, all know <laughs> about that, uh, you know, that was a, a psychological operation itself. And we know that it is the case because of both the coordination and how it was handled in, in propaganda and messaging. And of course, the orchestration of how it was funded and created with EcoHealth Alliance Inc. and NIH. So this this is really something that, you know, is, is a mass movement. And it is something that is unique and special and is something to recognize that this is not just, you know, a small little enclave like it was back you know, in the 1970s, or you might know all you know, 20 libertarians if you went to a, to a meeting, you know, that kind of thing. So we are, we're at that crossroad. And in the process, of course, it's not all neat, as, as you mentioned correctly as well with, with uh, Tim Cast, for example. There are different people at different stages. They're hearing the messages. They're, they're walking their way down the principled path. They're not all the way there yet, and they have some contradictory things. And it is up to people like us to remind them of what it is that it means to be consistent and principled because it's not easy. And I, I know that myself. I, I was a neoconservative. I had to come out of that. It took me years of deprogramming, researching, arguing, challenging. It was tough because I had so much put on to me that I had to overcome. And so I understand that with other people. But the thing to do is to never compromise when it comes to that discourse. You don't compromise on the principles. You just remind them, hey, you know, you're having this conflict, this cognitive dissonance in your head about this situation. But guess what? The principle take and what's in your control, what do you actually control as an individual? is to just be against 
the state violence and to promote free markets, peaceful trade, consensual relationships, self-defense, all the core concepts that we hold so near and dear that we know incentivizes peace. We don't, there's just no need for any type of compromise. We're not here signing a treaty. We're here just changing minds and helping people start in their home and their very own life think outside the state, whether that's thinking outside of CBDCs, you know, central bank digital currencies, thinking about how to have more independence. Again, it doesn't mean you have to go live off grid or something like that. It's just how do you increment your life so you become less dependent and less tied in to state control. And you do that at whatever level is convenient for you, whatever, you know, makes sense. But just even those little steps collectively, as in people collectively taking action, makes a huge difference when it comes to building this parallel economy. That is this economy and this culture and this structure that exists outside the status controlled mainstream, the things that are intertwined with the deep state CIA controlled media networks. That is very powerful and it causes a whole generation to rise up of young people who are growing up in a different environment, you know, where they're being unschooled or homeschooled, where they're reading Tuttle Twins, where they're not being as heavily indoctrinated by all this collectivist thinking from the state and all this violent nationalism. So I think that those things are coming to a head and, and the ideas are unstoppable no matter what, just because it's not really possible for the government to shut down every possible thing and every channel now, especially because of all the redundancies that have been built. Uh, but it is up to us to continue that journey and that progress that we've made so far. And if we don't, then yes, we, we will be in, in trouble if, if we just give up. Um, but we have no reason to give up. There is no <laughs> material thing that is is meaningfully going to stop us at this point, especially in the message of liberty and how much is, it's gained root. And so all we have at this point now is, is just facing the desperation of those in political power, as we've seen time and again, when they are losing the ideological war, you know, and part of that evidence is right. The enlistment in the military is all time low. No one wants to to sign up. They're desperate for for foot soldiers to do violence, right? So we we're seeing that their desperation comes with an even stronger propaganda and an even stronger attempt to deplatforming and get rid of people. But they can't they can't keep it up forever. They they can't do it when that information is already spread. It's already past the point, and people have have woken up to it and are saying, you know what. I, I'm tired of all this nonsense. And you have this popular culture, uh, anti-war sentiment, even now that you, you'd be shocked, you know, to, to see, especially since the, the nineties and the early two thousands and everything that was done, you know, surrounding nine 11, you know, the, the, the level of anti-war anti-funding sentiment is, has never been stronger. And so we are seeing a, a more unified stance of the government is, not the solution, but we just need people to do that without making exceptions. Like the only problem with that is when people do stop seeing the government as the solution, the government comes in with the problem, you know, and like we'll have a Reichstag or a 9-11 or something like that where the government comes, you know, like, oh, people aren't paying attention. We need, you know, the problem reaction solution paradigm. And um, and that's a, an unfortunate reality, you know, like with what you just said about COVID and um, and and how we and how it can literally flip people, you know, into a totally different person overnight. And I just, I get so discouraged so many times, you know, when I see all these people that I once, uh, you know, looked up to, like Jason just posted a picture of Rand Paul, um, you know, praying towards the, the wailing wall. And, um, you know, and I, I kind of, I had a little hope about uh, RFK waking people up, but, you know, as soon as the, 
the Israel narrative started to be spewed from his mouth, it was, um, you know, once again, knock me back down. And um, and I'm not saying I'm not like being pessimistic or anything like this. I'm just wondering, like, how can we instill these values? Like you just said, I was a neo. You said you were a neoconservative. I was as well. You know, I, I came from military. You know, I was I was heavily indoctrinated for for years. Um, and I was one of those guys that said I wanted to turn everything into a parking lot and uh, turn the whole Middle East into a parking lot and, you know, kill everybody. I would have killed anybody that they pointed me at. And um, and I don't have a like a, a specific instance in my life that like flipped a switch or anything like that. It was this really gradual process um, that I can't really define, you know, and so that the like we we talked to Larkin Rose, who um, who actually is, you know, building this program to kind of to deprogram people like that. You know, um, I'm not exactly sure exactly how he's going to do it. We talked about it at length on the podcast, but um, I, you know, I guess I, what I want to know is like, I'm, I, because I don't have the path or any kind of format of how I woke up, how do you suggest we keep people awake the next time the government comes back in with this problem and expects their reaction and then proposes their solution? Yeah. So I appreciate you bringing in that, that talk with uh, Larkin Rose as well, because he does a lot of great work. His Jones Plantation was fun and he mm-hmm. was kind of educating people. And that's, that's a great example of people coming up with ways to help deprogram people. I think that's that's brilliant. I, I think that when it comes to this topic, though, we have two different situations. We have the act of, of deprogramming, which can be a lengthy process, as, as you mentioned for yourself. It can take a long time, uh, especially if you have a lot built into it. If you're very politically minded, it, you know, there's a lot of things to undo. But there's also the other part, which is keeping someone principled. Uh, I've seen plenty of people who hear the ideas and who say they accept them uh, quickly fall apart when something that they maybe have a special sensitivity about or, or lack of understanding about comes their way. And, and then they're like, oh, well, we, we need to have this expe- exception to the, to the rule kind of thing. And we need the government to do this. Mm-hmm. or how, you know. So to me, a big part of getting people out of there is, is not just the programming as- deprogramming aspect, but it is meaningfully getting people to think about what it means to change themselves first. And I think that the self-knowledge aspect is very key to sustainable change. Just thinking about the principles of abstraction obviously is an important exercise in thinking about what is the nature of government? What are they really doing? You know, What's your true relationship? That's great. But if you don't have a good sense of your own self in terms of what your past was, how you think, what you have as your basis for finding truth and philosophy. If you don't have that self-knowledge work, nothing can really last because you haven't developed a framework about which to reason through what is going on and to move past what is essentially trauma-based reactivity. And that type of, of thing happens even for things that are not political, right? There are people who have an abusive relationship they've been in, or maybe they were abused as kids in a certain way, or maybe they had something traumatic where they're fearful for life, maybe a dog attack or something like that, right? But they're afraid of dogs. You have those types of traumas that exist for other situations in life that also apply to the philosophical realm when you're thinking about the principles of liberty, because the traumas here are, in the case of, of statism, the force, threats, and violence used to imbue this idea that the state is ethical and necessary and inevitable and you just need to bow down and worship it right essentially when you think about all the things that are put into a young person between school and and outside uh, propaganda in the media so you have to break through 
those constructs and you have to edify one's philosophical understandings and work through what it means to understand and perceive truth and how to process information in order to sustainably maintain the principles for the long term. I think anybody can do that. It's not like, oh, this is just for the most elite smart people or something like that. No, not at all. But it just takes time. It takes time no matter who you are. And if you have a lot of baggage, whether that's uh, emotional baggage from actual trauma outside of liberty stuff or or just stuff that you know you grew up with and for a long time you were a hardcore Democrat, a hardcore Republican or whatever, th- there's a lot that you have to undo philosophically and you have to work your way through and through a, a total mind rejuvenation in order to get to the point where you can not be triggered into a fear-based mindset based on propaganda by the state. And as we've, we saw, and you, and you mentioned again, that with what happened in, in the 2019-2020 arena, that massive uh, group trauma, that you know fear-based trauma was triggered for everybody, right? And that's, and that's how it goes. The government tries to drive at those base instinct fears to get people to react in a way where they give up their autonomy out of fear. And so moving away from fear and moving toward peaceable reason and reflection just involves doing a lot of self-knowledge work and healing. And I do talk a bit about that actually in my book, Philosophical Voluntarism. It's, It's a primer that helps people change the way that they think about the world in a way that gets them to become more uh, rational. And when I say rational, I mean their, their actions align with their outcomes, right? When you, when you want to take an action and you want a certain outcome, you don't want to do something that does the opposite, right? You want to buy an electronic that works. You don't want it to you know, take it home and then all of a sudden it doesn't work or doesn't meet your needs, right? It's the same thing with every part of your life and relationships. You want your actions to align with your outcomes. If you want to have a good relationship with your significant other, you want to do things that lead to that. If you want to have a healthy body, you do things that lead to that, right? It's the same thing when we're talking about the principles of voluntarism and an outcome of of a peaceful future of people. We need to take the thought processes and the actions that align with our objectives that get us to that point. And recognizing what's in our control, which begins with ourselves. That's why it's self-knowledge, not, you know, knowledge of others or not, you know, control of others. It's, it's self-knowledge is where we start. And then that manifests in real benefit for us as individuals and for our families, you know, whether it's a spouse or girlfriend, fiance, whatever, or, you know, boyfriend, girl, whatever, or kids, you name it, family, it affects everything. These principles affect everything. And so, you know, that that's how we get to that point is is just going beyond the basics of the economics and the basics of just you know the the core nap principles jack are you trying to tell me that the state isn't actually a human rights organization (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, they have they think they have a right to humans i think (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome i think you hit the nail on the head there and uh one element of that as well, it's part of the equation I'd probably add is the whole identity aspect of things, right? And I would say the ruling class uh, has invested pretty deeply into obfuscating our identities and our sense of identity and who we are. And I think there's a huge issue right now right now with that. And we're seeing that kind of transpire in a bunch of different ways, whether it be the, the propaganda pushing more of and romanticizing the idea of you know, the, the trans movement, I think there's a bunch of different examples. I mean, we, we see it in identity politics in almost every aspect of our lives. And I think, you know, you, you said something that was important. I think there's a level of integrity that couple is coupled with this identity understanding. And I think if you don't 
have that level of integrity to to seek and search out challenging your principles, challenging your beliefs, challenging your worldviews, then you're, you're going to be kind of this uh, useful idiot for the, the ruling class and the establishment. So that old saying, you know, know thyself. I mean, I, I think that couldn't be any more relevant today. And backing up a, a little bit, you were talking about some of the winds of liberty. And it feels like for us that have been paying attention, there has been a gradual shift, right? Like there might not be people calling themselves libertarians or anarchists or voluntarists, but it almost seems like our ideas are winning even without the labels. It's almost like people are starting to kind of understand that there's inherent value in in these principles and these ideas of liberty. And it, not only that, but it coincides with peace as well. So I, I do think we're we're moving in the right direction as well. And, you know, we usually try to save our, our white pill moment for the end, you know, talking about solutions. But I think you you already covered it in your previous comment. Another aspect of this too that seems particularly positive and encouraging is that we're with the internet, we're bypassing the gatekeepers, right? Like when I was growing up, there were far and few between huge figures, figures who were trying to promote these ideas of, of liberty and peace. People who are well-spoken, well-versed, have the knowledge, uh, have the, the lived experience. And you know, people like Spike Cohen, for instance, or Dave Smith, or even Cody Wilson, these people have become figures who would have never existed without social media, that you know, w- without the gatekeepers kind of having control over the limitations of their speech. So in many ways, I think you don't even have to be necessarily like onboarded with the libertarian philosophy. You know, I, I think enough people are starting to recognize the the mechanisms of statism and the levers of control are, are vast, and we're becoming you know kind of outnumbered in this sense that we, we our options are becoming limited. So we need to start doing something fast, and it seems like there's a sense of urgency that's starting to kind of come all around the world, whether it be in Argentina or supporting the, the Palestinian struggle, even you know what happened in, with COVID in this country. So that's certainly promising. Uh, however, it doesn't mean that we're not up against you know formidable foes in this fight. I mean, even just recently, the Republican presidential candidate and former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, I think it was on Tuesday, suggested that social media companies should be verifying users by their name basically calling you know anonymity a, a, a national security threat because of Russia and China's influence over US elections what i was just saying about having these people who are bypassing the gatekeepers like that would make things much more difficult and not to say that i think a lot of the people who are public figures obviously go by you know their own names and they try to be public figures to to push these messages forward but at the same time this seems particularly ominous and you know it's funny that we're still hearkening back to this Russia's influence, Russia's misinformation, Russia's election influence and all that stuff, because I actually have a screenshot from the year 2000 on my desktop about claims from the CIA warning about Russia and Chinese cyber attacks on the US. So this is old, old hat. These are old kind of tired tropes that they keep kind of pulling out of, of the bag whenever they feel like they need even more control over our lives. But I was wondering if there is like a deeper objective at play here. And, you know, I I know that maybe people don't necessarily view Nikki Haley as some type of deep state player, but having less privacy could only do more damage to what we're trying to do and for our cause. 
And, and some people could even speculate that this could potentially tie into things like the digital ID eventually, uh, which I want to talk about at some point during this conversation. But I mean, how do you think we should view a proposition like this by Nikki Haley? Is, is this potentially setting the table for something larger? Yeah, well, it's absolutely evil, of course. I mean, the whole goal is to try to find who political enemies are. I personally would say, though, from my legal perspective, it would not pass a first attest, uh, amendment muster because uh, it is pure political speech. And anonymity was something that was uh, a big part of the founders when they would write uh, papers anonymously against the British government. So there's a very strong uh, case history with, you know, this would be struck down pretty much immediately. But nonetheless, it still is something that is uh, concerning and should highlight anyone who supports this. It should highlight who uh, the most dangerous enemies are because they are they're showing their cards. They're, they're telling you who they are and they're saying, hey, we want to come after you. So, you know, believe them when they tell you, when they tell you who, who they really are. So that it's very clear that she's a part of a cabal who wants to uh, do everything that they can to try to snuff out anyone who would oppose their power and their rule. But I mean, with that said, and I don't disagree with you, I mean, if it got into the courts, but I mean, we've seen, you know, with the Twitter files and even the Facebook files that came out later that the state has no problem with kind of circumventing the Constitution. And uh, we even just covered a, a story recently on the Free Thought Project about police departments now, uh, even intelligent agencies who are actually buying data uh, from private companies. So they're not actually violating uh, any constitutional amendments. So, I mean, how do we just to say that there's this piece of paper that's going to protect us? I mean, I know, I know you're an anarchist, so you know, <laughs> this is certainly in your uh, wheelhouse. But like, I mean, how do we rectify that? Like, even if there is a piece of paper that says that they're not supposed to do these things, they're still going to, right? If that means they have that much more levers of control for their trillion dollar uh, machine. So, um, but I mean, we don't have to, to focus on this too much. I don't think there was a very deep question there to begin with, but it, it does seem troublesome. It does seem worrisome. And again, you know, tying into all these things, and some people might call us a conspiracy theorist for thinking about things like the digital ID, uh, CBDCs, 15-minute cities, social credit scores, but these are kind of all on the horizon. And there's things that have already been rolled out in different parts of the world, like China, for instance. Right. And I'm, I'm not saying that that's not a concern or government's trying to get information. The government's trying to get information is, is as old as ever. So that's that's not something new. The issue, though, that we would face wouldn't really change it as much as, you know, there's a government actor or a bad private actor, just like you have a private um, hacker or someone who's trying to, you know, put malware in your computer. All these issues coalesce. They, the issue is that we need technology that protects our identity and keeps us anonymous or has, you know, security so that no one can meaningfully get into that. And that's, of course, where all these things rub up against each other, right? When the government wanted to get Apple to be like, hey, build us a backdoor. And they're like, nah, we're good. You know, th th it's, it's always, um, you know, inherently tied to security that, that, if you want security, your security needs to be good enough against all actors, private or government, right? So we need to have solutions that will protect us completely, um, not with any form of backdoor. And so that, you know, that's really who we should support or, or find, you know, to, to support um, anyone who's making technologies that do provide that true anonymity um, as, as much as possible and that security as great as possible where you know it's it's not really something you can readily get or decrypt um, because you, you want that no matter what you want to have uh, you know that 
security and privacy for everything that you do so that no one can rip your <laughs> private information, you know, your credit card details or, or anything that's, you know, important to protect. So, you know, it comes together with technology. With great technology, we also have great security risks. And so we should always uh, be proponents of security, not at the convenience of the state. I was going to bring up the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Osama bin Laden letter that the Guardian published and then went viral. Did you, did you guys see that? No. I so, didn't read it, but I saw about it. Yeah. 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 So bin Laden wrote a letter in 2002 and the Guardian published it this year or like a couple of days ago. And it basically just, you know, it explains why he was calling the United States his enemy. Uh, it was one of the sanctions against uh, Iraq that killed hundreds of thousands of children. The one that member Margaret Sanger famously went on CBS and said, yes, well, the children have to die, you know, for, for U.S. interests. Right. And then uh, the other part was that uh, it was the U.S. support for uh, Israeli violence and then U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. So that letter was published and it, it's getting... Um, Ted Kaczynstified, right? Like, you know, that everybody who read the Unabomber's manifesto uh, was like, man, actually, that's pretty fucking smart, dude. You know, um, or a pretty good point. Not pretty smart, but, you know. So <clears throat> anyway, that started happening on TikTok in the last couple of days. And uh, with people reading Osama bin Laden's letter, like he was uh, like his like his manifesto made sense. And actually, if you if you do look at it, you know, no one wants 100,000 children to die. No one once, you know, the, uh, a radicalized uh, regime and, and all these other things. And so after it started going viral, The Guardian deleted it. What? <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And they put out a statement like they 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 put out like that uh, The Guardian had published a full letter or uh, th this page previously displayed a document containing in translation the full text of Osama bin Laden's letter to the American people. Um as reported on Sunday, it's from 2002. The document, which was published here on the same day, was removed on 15 November 2023. So basically, they deleted the news or they deleted information because people were reading the information. <laughs> and it, it, it just, that tells you everything you need to know about mainstream media, right? Like that the, these people put out this information, you know, to, to let people see, but they're like, Oh God, people are reading the information. <laughs> and they're interpreting it incorrectly. We need to, we need to save it from them. So then when, and when they deleted it, it actually made it go even more viral, which is a good thing, which is what we were just talking about, about, you know, how there's this, this wildfire that's spreading, uh, this libertarian and volunteerism, uh, wildfire that's spreading. But, um, with uh, an enemy like that, you know, in the mainstream that's so blatantly willing to just do censorship right out in the open, <laughs> you know, like that's that that's a um, that's a big uh, boon for the reasons why people like the Free Thought Project and, and, and other alternative media outlets are and were so important you know we we were we don't do that <laughs> you know and and it's uh i i don't really have a question i was just i was kind of thinking about it when i was reading about all this today and uh and how sad it is that that there are really no more media outlets like that left you know we like the free thought project we put out a few articles here and there there was but but the in the peak of all this you know like back Pre 2019, it was a it was a, a fucking mecca. Like there was so much 
information out there that wasn't being censored and anything like that. Now we're, we do, we have like the Tim pools, you know, we have the, the Glenn Greenwalds. Um, it's, it's almost like it's just getting monopolized again. You know, I'm not saying anything bad about like those people, like they do talk about some very good things, but there was this like, uh, more organic, you know, open source information just everywhere. There was, there was all kinds of websites that were putting out this information and, and it's, it's almost like the government kind of won in that respect when they, when they shut us all down because it kind of just channeled the voices into these divisive echo chambers. <clears throat> and, um, that I guess they do reach a lot of people, you know, but as far as, um, as far as, a, a vast array of information. We don't really have that anymore. And it's, uh, it's sad. And, and, and what we're left with is, uh, you know, the guardian deleting a letter for, because people were reading it. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, Jack, you are currently fundraising for your latest comic edition entitled voluntarius suit saga one. You've made some impressive headway with the funding for this one. I think you've done a lot to establish your brand over the years, so it's great to see people donating and supporting you to, to get this one done. Now, there is a brief caption for the story on this one, and uh, I'll just take a, a second to read it for our audience just in case anyone's interested in donating or, or purchasing it. Voluntarius is the tale of a superhuman hero who finds himself pitted against the government as the government tries to enslave humanity once and for all. He's a young man with extraordinary powers created through a chance encounter with cosmic radiation. His personal mission is to rescue his parents from government agents, but that objective is often frustrated with the likes of giant monsters, supervillains, and even the deep state. So I, I guess with the success of Eric July's Ripaverse, do you feel like there is an emerging audience for this type of content? And are most of the people who buy these comics, whether, you know, yours or Eric's, are they fans of comics or are they fans of anarchism, voluntarism? Or, I mean, I guess there's a third option. Have you guys just created a whole new subgenre with the emergence of liberty-based cartoons? Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty wild time out there for independent creators, especially, and, you know, Thanks, uh, Marvel and DC, for doing such a terrible <laughs> job and creating uh, opportunities for us out here. It's really uh, better without you. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there's uh, differences in terms of what our content is and, and audiences are. Eric July's Ripperverse is actually more of a mainstream kind of comic. It's a uh, younger teen accessible, and the focus is not as much, um, I guess you could say, philosophical, political as mine is a little bit more in the wow. face. Uh, his is more so uh, a normal comic series, but if you read between the lines of some of the things, he definitely incorporates some themes of liberty and contention there. And even in his first ISOM 1, uh, that is his first campaign for his first comic character, he had a whole page with him drawn in and he had a taxation theft hat. So there are always Easter eggs here and there. He, he's still putting it in, so I, I really appreciate that about him. Um, but that said, his success on that first campaign was was definitely a big part of just him having all of his fans from all of his, his uh, genres come out and support him. Yeah, it was huge. And since yeah. that time, but, oh yeah, I mean, very 511,000 subscribers on, uh, 500, yeah, 511, or 511,000 subscribers. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, I was like, wait, did I say that right? Yeah. So that was, it really is big. It's when you say it, it's like, oh, wow, that is so big. <laughs> you know, for Liberty Hebel, that's like pretty impressive sure. for people, you know. Sure. Well, uh, he has, you know, a huge fan base, of course. And he has, you know, music and he did Liberty things with being libertarian, all this other stuff. So 
he had a, a big wave of support that got him kicked off and he was smart with it. He took that money, he reinvested himself in this company, he got more writers, more artists. And now I think that what you're seeing is is the campaigns are leveling, leveling out to the people who are true comic fans. So my estimation, I did do a little write-up about this, is that he has what seems to be about 10,000 core comic book fans. So people who are coming back because they really want to see the comic, not just support him the first time to get him going as you know, kind of a show of thanks for his work. Um, but that's huge. I mean, that, that's, that's massive. So I did, I did some numbers on that and showed how a 10,000 you know, comic fan base is, is like a four to $5 million a year business. And he's already raised across all of his campaigns over $7 million just, just for starters. So wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's substantial. It's, it's, there's nothing to, to shake a stick at for an independent creator. So he's killing it. He's doing great. Um, Obviously, you know, in, in other realms, there, there's different comic creators within the Comicsgate realm, which is Comicsgate is, is creators who are outside the mainstream uh, realm who are tired of the SJWing that's going on and the taking characters and just swapping their sex, sexuality, gender just to repackage it and sell it. So there's this, there's there's a divide. There's people who are just trying to make good comics and have continuity. There's people who have unique messages like what I'm doing in the realm as well. So you get you get a wide variety, but it's great because that means there's more choice in the market. There's there's more opportunities for people to get things that they really enjoy. And for me, you know, I have more of a comic fan base of the people who like my stuff at this point uh, because I've been doing it for so sure. long. So, you know, my, my first, hey, you know, support thing was 10 years plus ago. I've been doing the Origins thing for about or the origins campaign completed about over six years. And now I'm working on this new arc suit saga. Yeah. And as you said, yeah, yeah we're, we're doing all right. We already have in uh, 65% of our goal um, with still 43 days left. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're trucking along nicely for that. And again, it's not, it's not as anywhere as big as, as Eric July did or someone like, you know, Cyberfog, that kind of thing. Uh, but for me, my measure of success is always just, am I hitting my goal or above? Am I doing better than last time? And, and so far we've actually had, uh, the fastest funding in terms of time of all time um, out of my comic campaigns. And last last campaign, um, we had a, spe a special thing. We raised about 20000 on that. So again, you know, nothing that is mainstream level, but nothing that is, you know, for me, uh, sad or embarrassing. We, no. I got to accomplish all my goals. And it is it is a fundamentally, it is, it is a fundraising campaign for the creation. So it's not like, oh, the campaign's done and that's it. I still sell, you know, hundreds and thousands of comics outside of the campaign on a print-on-demand level, just like someone buys a comic ongoing. So there is technically a divide between what maybe I'm doing it and Eric July. He's doing a pre-order campaign. I do a fundraising campaign that's, you know, create it and get special perks. And then after that, it goes on sale and people buy. I don't have to deal with, with the sales directly, though, because it's a third party that handles all that. So, um, you know, it, it's been a blast, and I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we've done. We had to an excellent remaster uh, on the origin series. So what happened there is the first two issues, they were with a different company that went defunct. We had some art issues. We went back, we fixed it all. We redid the covers, we redid letters, and now it's it's gorgeous. I'm, I'm completely satisfied and proud of the series. It's something you know I'd be happy to have showcased in stores. It looks amazing. We have a 192-page trade paperback. It's full wrap cover. It's beautiful. Um, so now everything we have is in continuity, looks great, and this new campaign continues with that excellence. Uh, the comic cover is awesome. The artwork is great. I did the letters myself, uh, and uh, you know we have some really cool things with it. They are. Those are some really well written and well illustrated comics. My uh, son loves it, dude. I uh, I I started backing you in um, on Origins Four, and uh, yeah, so we have a a couple of your of your books over here and we're looking forward to the, the, this new saga that you got in the works right now. Wow. I'm honored. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> that makes me feel great. It's whenever someone says, Oh, Hey, you know, I got this and my kid likes it too. I'm like, 
wow. Oh, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so, awesome. He loves it. That's uh, amazing. You pulled a, a George Lucas on it too, and you, you redid it all. And congrats on, yeah. uh, you know, well, I guess being what you said, 65% done with the funding. And uh, I know that's not easy. You know, we've we certainly hit some um, rough patches with funding for our end of things. But I mean, you're creating value there. And, uh, you know, thanks for the info on Ripaverse. I guess I never really looked too deep into it. I think most of the information I've, I've seen about uh, Eric July's success in that realm is actually from your posts, because I know you've been very supportive <laughs> of him. And dude, 10,000 fans, like that's that's amazing. I think our followers and listeners on this podcast have probably heard me talk about uh, the thousand true fan theory. But uh, basically, there's this idea that, you know, it obviously takes a lot of hard work. But once you've built up to a thousand true fans, uh, you're basically free forever to live as an independent creator that's able to earn some good money uh, doing what you love. So uh, anybody who's out there who is a content creator, that should be your goal or one of them anyway. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work, having these important conversations, and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. Jack, I know we're getting low on time here. I did have one last question for you that seems kind of relevant. I know you've been a veteran in this movement for a long time, and uh, I think in our last interview, you shared your origin story. You know, you stated you started in like the mid two thousands. I think somewhere around there, right? Yeah, that's right. My my first foray into challenging what I knew began in 2005. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, shit, you got a long time in this world. You know, I, I mentioned our last podcast that you're one of the busiest people in the Liberty movement. Um, you know, we were just talking about the, the comics, the voluntarist comics you do, but you're always constantly shooting and recording Liberty related music videos. Um, you're, you're very much a social media commentator, um, you know, on Twitter and, and Facebook and doing a lot of interviews. Somebody who invests so much time and energy and themselves into this cause and movement, I'm curious how you find a balance in it all and how you keep being productive without sinking too deep into the burn, which I think many of us feel, including myself, and I don't want to speak for Matt, but I think he definitely feels that way at times. So yeah, what is the secret? Like, What is the key? What suggestions would you give to our audience who might be a few years into this and, and finding themselves like inundated with information and feeling kind of tired and burnt out from the constant onslaught of you know, these news topics and narratives that we endure on a, a, a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, it, it just depends on the person. But for me, the thing that probably makes it easiest for me is, is I'm project oriented. So that means that 
I can seed in whatever direction I want, depending on my interests. I'm like, hey, you know what? I feel like doing music, music videos. Okay, I can do that. If I want to do comics, I can do that. If I want to do nonfiction, I can do that. If I want to write an article, I can do that. Uh, you know, I, I can basically pick and choose based on the mood, based on what's going on culturally and adapt. And so that, I guess, helps keep me excited and relevant as, as much as I can, because I don't have to just stick to one format, right? If someone's just like, all I have is this podcast that comes out every Thursday night at nine, then it's like, that's your thing. But then it might be hard to do something else. If you have, oh, I have this blog and that's all I do is I write articles a day. It's like, okay, that, you know, then that's what you got. But I, I kind of created um, a variety of outlets that enabled me to sow and, and steward as is interesting or as is relevant. And I think that that helps a lot to keep it interesting is that I'm not stuck to just one, one format. So if I'm like, eh, you know, I feel like switching it up, I can always do something else. And so, you know, again, that's not for everybody. So it's kind of hard sometimes to do that, but if you have a project based thing, then sometimes uh, it's more exciting and there's, and there's closure to that, right? When you have a, when you have specific objectives and you're like, Hey, we want to do this thing. We're going to fundraise for it. Then we're going to do it. Then we're going to complete, we're going to send you stuff. Thank you so much. Then it's like, you have this closed window for that event. And then you have a, a connection between a, a successful start and a successful finish. You have rewards and people getting into that and getting hyped. You have closure and that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I think there is something to having something tangible uh, to celebrate and to get people excited uh, and riled up over and, and to show success for, right? Sometimes it's hard to just show success, especially when you're, you know, in the middling or lower range of things, you know, you don't have a hundred thousand subscribers, right? You're like, oh, I'm just writing articles. You're churning them out. It's like, yeah, I got 30 people to read this. Maybe that can be tough. You know what I mean? It can be exhausting to not feel like you're getting the immediate rewards. So sometimes um, there's, you know, you get that dopamine rush where you have a, a narrow project, specific outcomes and objectives, the ability to show that you completed it and connected with people, funded it, made it happen, you know, and, and created. I think there is something special to that. There is something that that is invigorating about it. That's a really cool outlook, man. I love the way you just described that. The project oriented is that was cool. Yeah, it, just don't limit yourself. Don't pigeonhole yourself. And I, I think it's easy to do that, right? Because you you start thinking of yourself as this this one dimensional figure of I'm a writer or I'm a, a, a meme creator, or I'm a podcaster or something. I think if right. anything I, I took from you is like, yeah, just don't uh, pigeonhole yourself, but also keep it fun and also have, you know, create your own story arc, which is kind of ironic because we're, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's, it seems like that's kind of what it comes down to. And I certainly have a problem with the balance side of things. Like I'm the guy who wants to just do everything all the time and I have a hard time kind of picking and choosing. And so I appreciate that feedback. Now, uh, as I said, we are, you know, pretty much wrapping up the podcast now. So I know you're on Twitter as Jack V. Lloyd. Uh, you're very active on Facebook. Uh, I've seen your numbers growing on Instagram, but you do so much. So what is the best way for people to follow your work and support what you do? Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm all over the place and I have so many different modalities that, you know, it just gets ridiculous trying to tell everybody everything and, and then it just goes over their heads anyway. So you just go to Jack V. Lloyd, that's J-A-C-K, V is involuntarist, L-L-O-Y-D, Lloyd, jackvlloyd.com. I create a website to kind of bring some of that together, at least just to have a, a one-stop shop to, to go from. I also have my comic website, V-O-L, that's Vol, 
like Voluntarius Vol, volcomic.com. And that's where I do my comic book stuff uh, and, you know, keep people updated there. But from there, you can launch into all kinds of things. I'm, I'm all over the place, as you mentioned exactly. You know, I have Instagram, which I barely just use. I just kind of use to post stuff from X, you know, formerly Twitter. Uh, and I, you know, have uh, Minds. I ha- I'm on Easency. I'm on Facebook. I'm on YouTube. You know, I, it's just there's so many different social media things. And my websites, it's just it's hard to keep up with it all. So between Volcomic and JackDLoyd.com, I think you might be able to find what you need. <laughs> Fair enough. Matt, do you have anything else before we uh, shut this down? No, man. It was a great conversation, dude. I enjoy talking to you, Jack. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. I really appreciate you. Yeah, man. Well, I think I said this last time, but you're straight up a Liberty rock star, brother. And we need more people like yourself making Liberty cool while also you know, staying grounded with the foundation of philosophy, uh, economics, and logic. And in my opinion, you ride that wave perfectly. So uh, thank you for your dedication to Liberty and appreciate your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks guys for having me on. 